0: Good morning. And what a glorious truth that is that we just sang. You know, I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about the reason that we are not overtaken. Um, And so, hopefully, by the end of this time, that will mean even more than it did when we sang it a few minutes ago. Have you ever watched the coverage of a hurricane roll in on the Weather Channel? Um, if you're like me, I, I've done that, uh, and <laughs> you watch Jim Cantore, decked out in Weather Channel blue from head to toe, standing there, holding on to a light pole. The winds are raging 150 miles an hour. He might not even make it through the broadcast. He's screaming into the microphone, telling you how crazy it is, and you're like, "You're an idiot. What are you doing?" And as Jim flies around in the wind and debris is going all over the place, there in the background, you may have noticed some palm trees. Palm trees, bending, but not breaking. Bending in the wind, amidst all the devastation, but still standing proud. And when the storm passes and we see all the pictures and the videos of the devastation, there oftentimes are the palms, battered and worn, but still standing. And why is that? Well, you know, God designed palm trees with some pretty amazing and unique properties. I looked into it a little bit as I was preparing for this sermon, and God has equipped palms with exactly what they need to endure the storm. For one, palm trees have a large web of roots that are relatively short and they spread throughout the top layer of the soil. It actually creates a large amount of soil into the root ball and the trees have a heavy anchor. They're bottom-heavy, and so they don't fall over. Second, whereas pines or oaks or other large trees grow in radial ring patterns that if you cut them down, you can see, palm trees grow in small bundles with wires intertwined like a cable. It creates a strong trunk that is flexible and able to bend. And third, the leaves of a palm don't spread out in large branches with leaves that can be tossed around and broken in the wind. No, palms have a central flexible spine that attaches to the fronds and they fold up and they flow into the wind, as you can see in the picture there. This morning, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Word of God and how we too can weather the storm like a palm. Not in our own strength, of course, but in the strength of another, the strength that Christ has given us. Because the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, pain and suffering are all around us. No one is untouched by it. And the follower of Christ can expect it all the more. I want to share a quote with you that I think captures the gravity of the storms and trials we will face from the late pastor Tim Keller. He said, the loss of loved ones, debilitating and fatal illnesses, personal betrayals, financial reversals, and moral failures, all of these will eventually come upon you if you live out a normal lifespan. No one is immune. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career." Something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. No human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Personally, the Lord has brought me to terms with this by having kids. Now, don't get me wrong. Kids are amazing. I love my kids. But up to that point in my life, I generally felt in control of things. I felt buffered from most forms of suffering. Well, and then the Lord placed these precious bundles of joy into my life. And you know what happens? They get sick. They get hurt. And I can't fix it. I can't do anything about it. And then when my youngest starts to have seizures that are uncontrollable, I feel helpless. I feel out of control. The Bible tells us to expect hardship, especially Christians. It can be easy to settle into our daily comforts and not give a lot of thought to suffering. But God's word is clear that followers of Christ will face trials and tribulation, outright spiritual warfare, suffering, and even death. Some of it may take the form of persecution, but much of it will probably take the form of life's difficulties. But regardless of how it shows up in our lives, you can bank on it. The storm will come. Jesus tells us so. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, Christ says, Then they will deliver you, speaking to his disciples, up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In the Gospel of John, Christ says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, he's speaking to a crowd of people. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, I say this not to conjure up some guilt in you and me for the lack of suffering we may be facing, but rather to remind us of the gospel's calling on our lives. I know for me it's incredibly easy to live in a Christian bubble, almost insulated from the secular world. As somebody who works from home full-time, it gives me a rhythm that I can be pretty carefree about the costly steps for the sake of the gospel, but this is not what God has called me to. It is the Christian life to charge headfirst into the world, not to withdraw from it. Now, before we get to the passage this morning, I wanna address what I'm gonna call two myths that can tend to get into our thinking when it comes to these storms of life. The first is that we think at times that suffering is generally fair. Do you know what I mean? In the sense that we think in the back of our mind that suffering is more or less like karma. And that thinking is insidious. It seeps into our way of thinking, Christian way of thinking. When we aren't experiencing suffering, it can be easy to see it out there somewhere in somebody else's life. And we try to explain it. You get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. Well, if you had just this, there's a tinge of justice and logic to it, isn't there? And there's just enough of that justice and logic to it at times that we can spread God's justice on top of karma like icing on a cake and explain it away. But the reality is suffering is far more complicated than that. And sometimes, or maybe even oftentimes, we can't make sense of it. And it doesn't seem fair. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to hear this tension in Scripture. From the prophet Job, he says, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what what profit do we get if we pray to Him? You know, seven of the Psalms cry out to God, How long, O Lord? Speaking to the suffering and the weightiness and the unexplainable nature of it. The prophet Habakkuk also helps us see this tension. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry out for help, and you will not hear me? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Of course, my point here is not that God is unfair. No. No, God is perfectly fair and just. My point is that we may need to acknowledge that suffering at times in this life may not make a bit of sense. It might not be fair or seem fair. We might cry out and groan, and it is okay to sit with and wrestle through that tension. A second myth that I want to point out and address is that suffering is pointless. Now, there's a bit of a prevailing narrative in our society today that we need to do whatever we can to stop all avoidable and senseless suffering. Well, and I don't necessarily disagree with that. Of course, as Christians, we mourn for the afflicted and we vigorously seek justice. Yet, we must also recognize that above all things, good and bad, we have a sovereign God who has a masterful purpose in the midst of pain. Suffering in and of itself is not the enemy. Suffering is the result of a fallen and broken world and of a sinful humanity that has rebelled against its creator. And in fact, it is often through suffering that some of the most powerful transformations of the heart occur. Scripture is overflowing with reminders of this. In First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, the apostle says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. No, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed." but let him glorify God in that name. Paul says in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. And in Hebrews, the author says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so the very death of Christ, the ultimate injustice and suffering, was fully planned and fully ordained by God the Father. It wasn't a mistake. It was on purpose. It wasn't that the Jews and the Romans plotted against him. It wasn't that this was a pointless death that happened despite Jesus' best efforts to avoid it. No, this was purposeful. This had a point. And so suffering for the believer we should recognize is never pointless. God is always at work in it and in us. So with this groundwork laid, let's turn our attention to the passage of Focus this morning which is Psalm 46. If you have your Bible with you today, I hope you'll join me there. Just a couple of words about this psalm. This is one of 11, written by the sons of Korah, most of which are clustered in this section of the book, chapters 42 to 49. Now, the sons of Korah were of the Levite priestly lineage. They were musicians placed in charge of the service of song by the king, Psalm 46 is poetry in song form, like all of the psalms, and it is written to the choir master, literally the director of music. And it is according to the Alamoth. I have no idea what that means, and nor do most experts. But speculation suggests that it alludes to singing in a high octave or soprano. I am not going to deliver such a reading this morning You can experiment with that in your own personal quiet time this week. But as I read the psalm for this morning, would you stand with me as we read God's word and allow these verses to wash over you and sense the presence of the Lord? Psalm 46, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Pray with me, will you? Father in heaven, you are mighty to save. We thank you that you are our strength and our fortress, a very present help in times of trouble. May we receive your word, what you have for us today, Lord. May my flesh not inhibit it at all. May your Holy Spirit be among us, strengthen us, help us to see how we can trust you no matter what comes in our lives. We love you. And we thank you for Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So, the main idea that I want you to see in this passage and that I hope you will take to heart is that no matter what comes, the people of God should not fear. No matter what comes, the people of God should not fear. Look at verse 2. We will not fear, it says. And so that begs the question, (laughs) when should we not fear? Well, verse 2 continues into verse 3, and it says, Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Pause for just a minute and take that in. That's pretty vivid imagery. I mean, these mental pictures of a natural disaster and fury help us connect with life overwhelming us. Think of a mountain. It could be Mount Mitchell or Mount Denali or Mount Everest. Those are not especially movable objects. right? They're quite predictably stationary. And we all expect them to stay right where they are. In fact, if they moved or were consumed by, say, water, we would find that shocking. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that even if the thing in your life that seems most dependable, most immovable, gives way, do not fear. That's quite a statement. If Mount Mitchell ends up underwater, we've got a problem. Now, I was trying to present to you this morning a picture of a mountain underwater. Turns out there are none. I Googled it for quite a while, and as I was sitting there in my chair Googling this, my son came over to me and he said, Daddy, what are you looking at? I said, well, I'm trying to find a picture of a mountain underwater and I can't find any. And he said, I'll draw you one. (laughs) And so here you have it, a mountain underwater. Thank you, Jackson but don't miss the point here. We aren't just talking about little inconveniences and difficulties. We are talking about any and every kind of storm that might come your way. The psalmist, though, goes out of his way to mention the life-altering thing that might hit us. The terminal cancer diagnosis. The tornado that flattens a home and takes a life. The prodigal child who won't repent the devastating water leak that causes tens of thousands of dollars of damage, the unexpected layoff, the blindsiding infidelity of a spouse, the persecution getting canceled for being a believer. It says, the earth gives way, we will not fear. Verse 6 gives us another mental picture of what should not cause us to fear. It says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. You know, you don't have to look at the news for more than about a minute to know we live in a mess of a world. Wars break out. Governments rise and fall. One party takes control, the other is sidelined. The Supreme Court rules abortion is legal. The Supreme Court rules abortion is unconstitutional. Nuclear war is a spark away from reality. Fox News, on one side, laments the erosion of the America that once was. And MSNBC laments the America that never has been. It's easy to get caught up in all of this noise and to be consumed by it. Now hear me, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't care about these issues. No, of course we should. These are important issues. But what I am saying and what the scripture is saying is that the geopolitical rumblings and shifting of American politics and society should not shake the Christian. This is not our home, friends. We are aliens in a foreign land. Yes, even the land of the free and the home of the brave. For the Christian, America the beautiful is not our home. It is but a vapor in time eternal. Our hope, our security is in and with our eternal Father. And so to summarize, whether the very ground we stand on shifts from underneath us or the world around us rages, we as followers of Christ are called not to fear. To put it more plainly, you've probably heard the saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, I'm not so sure, actually. The psalm seems to suggest otherwise. The imagery here seems to very much be something that I am not equipped to handle. And I think that is quite the point. What is that one thing that for you, if it happened, you don't think you could handle? If God took it away, if that happened to you, You have no idea what you would do or how you would carry on for that thing the psalmist is saying though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam though the mountains tremble at its swelling we will not fear now all this begs the question why should we not fear why should we not fear On what grounds should you and I buy the argument that we are not supposed to be afraid when something as crazy as a mountain being moved into the heart of the sea, when life crashes around me, not to fear? Well, the psalm gives us three specific reasons, three rock-solid truths that we can lean into when the storm comes and when the fear and the worry and the anxiety start to well up within us. And so let's consider each one of them. The first is that God is a trustworthy helper and protector. God is a trustworthy helper and protector. Look at verse 1. The song starts out with a glorious and important truth about our God. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Your Bible might have a footnote like mine that says, very present could be read as well-proved. I kind of like both. Our God, on the one hand, is very present. He's right there. He's with you, ready and willing to help. But he's also well-proved, tested, dependable, and trustworthy. It says he's a refuge, a refuge, a condition of being safe, or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. He is also strength. He possesses power, infinitely so. And in providing us refuge from the storm that we face, his power is sufficient to protect us. Now, notice here that the language that God is using is about weathering the storm. The language doesn't seem to suggest that God's going to fix the storm or stop the storm. Of course, he might. And we have a little literal example of that from Jesus with his disciples stopping a storm. But it seems to suggest that God is how we get through it, how we endure it. Look too at verse 7. It says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. A fortress is a military stronghold, a strongly fortified to withstand assault, something that is not susceptible. Or vulnerable to attack. It speaks to protection, help for whatever comes against us. And let us also not be quick to pass by the name of God mentioned here, the God of Jacob. Well, who is the God of Jacob? Points us back to the relationship between God and Jacob. Remember him, the younger son of Isaac, the younger brother of Esau, the one who was not supposed to get the birthright? but did, the one God chose, despite his conniving and lying ways, the one that God renamed Israel, which would become the name of God's people from that day forward. The prophet Malachi reminds us that Jacob's story was no accident. It was God's intentional, planned out choice. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God chose Jacob. Jacob found himself in a mess, but God was a refuge and a strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He blessed an entire nation and established his global kingdom through the lineage of a birthright thief not because Jacob deserved favor or because he was conniving, but because God was gracious. And in case you were tempted to miss the point, you fell asleep as I was talking right now, the psalmist has your back. He repeats it again in verse 11. Word for word, at the end of the psalm, remember the God of Jacob is our fortress. He's reminding us of his history with his people and just how trustworthy he is. And so the first reason we have not to fear is that God is a trustworthy helper and protector. He is faithful. He is a refuge. He is our strength. He is a fortress. And we can depend on him always. No matter what comes, the people of God should not fear. And now a second reason why that is the case is that God is with us. God is with us. Look now with me at verses 4 and 5. In contrast to the preceding verses, 2 and 3, which paint this tumultuous picture of chaos and crisis, we have here a stark juxtaposition, a scene of fury and devastation, a scene of peace and stability and blessing. There is a river whose streams, it says, not roaring, not foaming, not swelling waters, but gently flowing streams that make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. So though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, God shall not be moved. He is immovable and he will help her when morning dawns. There's so much that we could unpack from these verses but I want to keep it focused on the notion that God brings peace to his people by being with them. This harks back to a promise that Yahweh made to his people. In Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, it says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people." You see, God is saying to this nomadic, landless, pitiful people of his that he had chosen them and that he promised to be among them in peace and stability. They would have no more wandering, no more running, together in the same place in peace. Isaiah picks up on this too. Chapter 33, verse 21 of his prophecy, he says, but the Lord and majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. Protection, because he is with us in the same place as us. And then in Revelation, we have a picture of the consummation of all of this. Chapter 22, verses one and two, it says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we see across these verses, from the Pentateuch to Revelation, that God gives life to his people. How? By being with them. By being among them, we get to be in relationship with God. We get to be in His presence. Look again at verse seven. It says, "The Lord of Hosts is with us." And this is not referring to a pal or a friend. This isn't Jesus is my homeboy or Jesus is my co-pilot. This is the God of angel armies. This is a battle-ready leader who cannot be defeated. Second Chronicles. Chapter 20, verse 17 helps us get the full effect here, the right image of what it means to have the Lord of hosts with us. You see, there's this whole assembly of Judah standing around, and they're under attack by the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Munites are coming at them. And this guy, Jehaziel, gets up in front of the king and all the people, and he says to them, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Is that not amazing? God was with them as leader of the battle. He fought for them. God is with us. He fights for us. He wins the battle, not us. And so what are his people supposed to do with our fearless leader at the front? Stand firm, hold the position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And it's so important for us to get this, friends, to trust it. Again, the psalmist repeats it. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. A great reason not to fear is that the Lord of hosts is with us. And guess what? This is the heart of the gospel. Isaiah predicted it, and Christ fulfilled it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall come and or shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Literally, God with us. He came down from his throne. He took on flesh and became a man. He lived with us, he suffered, he died, and he rose again. And the best of all is that he invited us to rise with him, to die to our sins and be raised to walk in new life. God with us, so we can be with God forever. And so, brothers and sisters, in the family of God, when the going gets tough, when the crisis hits, when the storm rages, we do not fear because God is a trustworthy helper and protector and our God is with us. He does not forsake us, he does not abandon us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, he guides us and leads us. You are not alone in the midst of the storm. Two rock solid reasons not to fear no matter what comes. And now a third, the third reason we need not fear is that God is all powerful. Look at the first word of verse 1, God. This is the Hebrew word Elohim, which means mighty one. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for God here is actually in plural form, reminding us of the Trinity, an all-powerful three-in-one God. Consider the second part of verse 6, too. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Now, that's power. His voice melts the earth. This is the same voice that created the universe, the same voice that spoke creation into being. Absolute, unparalleled power. And look at verses 8 and 9. It says, "'Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear.' He burns the chariots with fire. All of the might and strength that worldly powers can muster, and again, our omnipotent God crushes all of it. He has brought, he makes, he breaks, he burns. Our God is over all of it, nature and nations. None of it is beyond or outside his power or his control. And the psalmist really brings it home for us here. Why should we fear when we have a God who's above it all? If God is more powerful than and in control of everything we are facing, why would we fear? We need this reminder because we lose sight of the glorious truth every single day. Paul says it best in Romans, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Three rock solid truths to lean on. Three answers to the question, why not fear? Our God is a trustworthy helper and protector. Our God is with us and our God is all powerful. Now we are close, but we're not quite done. These truths are the foundation, the unshakable, immovable evidence that the psalmist has laid out to convince us that fear for the Christian is not an option. But he doesn't leave us there, and that's good news. The psalmist gives us two very helpful, practical encouragements for how we can apply these truths to our lives. And so, how do we overcome fear? How do we overcome it in the face of any storm and trial two things to see. The first, from verse 8, is to behold. Verse 8 instructs us, behold, to see, literally to observe something that is remarkable or impressive, something worth seeing. This is not behold John playing golf, because that is very uninspiring, and not worth seeing. No, this is behold our great, all-powerful God, Come and see what he's done. See the works of the Lord. See how powerful he is. See how in control of all of it he is. In order to apply these truths to our lives, we have to see them. And how do we see them? How do we behold the works of God? Well, we engage the revealed word of God, the Bible. It is the secret map to the hidden treasure of life. We behold the story of God, His people, and how He has cared for them for millennia. We see how God carried His people from being nobody, nowhere, to sending somebody somewhere so that everyone everywhere might hear of Him and be with Him. And friends, don't wait for the crisis to hit to start beholding. Start beholding right now, today, because Frankly, the more saturated you are by God's word, by the story of who he is and what he has done for his people, and the more quickly your heart and mind will call it to memory when the storm does hit. And when it does, behold, you have a great God, a mighty one, the most high, the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, Yahweh. And so like a palm tree, be solidly anchored into the soil of God's word. Spread out roots. Become bottom heavy in the Bible. Let the gospel become an intertwined spine for you that forms a sturdy core. And read it when you want to, but definitely read it when you don't want to. And when the storm hits, you will be prepared to bend, but not break, not crushed, not destroyed. So the first thing we do to overcome fear is we behold. And the second thing we do to overcome fear is found in verse 10. Be still. Be still. Verse 10 is a bumper sticker verse, a life verse, right? And it's a good one. But let us not be too quick to miss what it's really saying to us here. The first nine verses of this psalm have built us up to a point where here, as it comes to a close, we are told to be still and know that I am God. Literally, the Hebrew can be translated to grow slack, to release, or let go. I love that. It's not just don't move, be still, don't make a sound. No, it's let go, grow slack, release. And so in the face of a crisis, when the storm hits, when your life crashes down around you, let go and let God, right? I mean, I have always thrown some shade on that saying. But hey, I went to the Hebrew, and it literally says let go. So boom, there it is. I'm sorry for past hate on that little phrase. Sometimes they work. Now, notice it is let go, not let it go. So the frozen would not work here, sorry. Uh, In all seriousness, as we let go, as we grow slack, and as we release control over whatever the thing is, we are told to know that I am God, Elohim, the Mighty One. And so here, how do we let go and know that he is God? Well, I know I'm going to shock you again with this one, but we pray. We get down on our knees and we let go. We grow slack. We release our burden and our worry and our endless striving to control it or to fix it, to figure it out. We talk with Him, our God, our Father, Abba. Know Him, be still. In the end, God will probably give you more than what you can handle. Not always but he might, once or twice, maybe many times. I don't know, and neither do you. Again, Keller helps us bring this home a bit. He wrote, when pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. You may know that this psalm is the one that Martin Luther wrote his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based upon. It is a glorious hymn, and it extends the truths that we have unpacked this morning into a song that we can sing. It helps us actually appreciate the original experience of Psalm 46, which was, in fact, meant to be sung. And so we're going to sing it this morning to close out. As we do that, I invite you to behold and be still. See the great God that we can call our own, that he is a trustworthy help, that he is with us, and that he is all-powerful. Be still and let go of whatever that burden is upon you this morning. You can release it. You can lay it before the throne of Almighty God and grow slack in his arms because he is good and he is in control. The second verse of the hymn says it like this, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. Do you pray with me?